Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Because they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. Now, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Loving me, loving me, say that you'll love me. Needing me, needing me, say that you'll need me. I don't care about anyone but you. Is that the divinals? Uh, boy, I have no idea. I is it the divinals from Austin Power, the first Austin Powers movie soundtrack? (laughs) Oh man, it feels like we're going back to 1997, doesn't it, Bob? Can you name me two? Wayne, um, sorry, I nearly said it. Two Mike Myers movies before Austin Powers. Man, I mean, so I married an axe murderer, of Good. course. I, I was hoping and, you'd get that one. Yeah, and it's got to be Wayne's World yeah. on that one. I, um, I famously, at one point in my life, I used to love the idea of posters. And I famously tore down my B- Bernie Kosar poster and put up a Dr. Evil poster. I feel like the Dr. Evil was pretty iconic as well, so... They're both excellent choices. Yeah. I don't know what, do you have any idea what came after those? Um, no, I really don't. That's yeah. Funny. I remember the cat that was on the branch that was falling and it said shit. <laughs> oh man, that's what memes were. Before, yeah. before we could like download and send memes to each other, we'd buy posters of like cats and stuff. That's funny. That was the first meme. Yeah. Wow. You remember throwback episode when we talked about stickers on this podcast? Yeah, I do. I remember just us getting really deep into stickers at one point. That one is a crowd pleaser. That one is a listener's favorite at all time. You wouldn't think. What is that one? Is that the sports (laughs) episode? No, I can't remember anymore, actually. Yeah. Interesting. But, you know, people are always talking about those stickers these days. They are. Um, Bob, you might not know this, but we have like three inches on the ground right now and it's like accumulating pretty fast. You know, I thought something was going on there looking at your screen. Some interesting colors going on. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty out. It seems like a a lovely day and I'm, uh, setting up for a long weekend here. I have tomorrow off, which feels nice. Oh, good. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And I'm... Just super stoked to record with you tonight. I don't know. Love I mean, it. I'm always, always pretty excited once we're in there. But today I was like, can't wait to get into the um, the sound studio with you, you know? 
Well, we got a new structure. We got some new things going on. Yeah, maybe that's part of it. We are taking, we tend to take a little mid-season break. Have you noticed that? I have. I was thinking the same. Yeah. And we like just throw whatever we're talking about out the window and get after something a little bit less serious and more fun, right? Yeah. We're like, I'm so sick of this topic. Yeah. <laughs> How many episodes do we make it in this this time? Are we three episodes into our, our season? Yeah, we're... No, I think we're four. I think we've published three. We got one in prep and then we got this one. Oh, okay. Nice. What do we, we have the dissertation? We have the episode on um, passing on baggage. Boy, what else, Bob? We have the preparing a go bag. Oh, nice. Yeah. The intro, right? Season yep. one. The or intro. Episode one. And I also can't remember what episode two is right now. I've got a little bit of the brain scramblies. Good. Well, you'll you'll have to get it up at some point, I'm sure. The brain scramblies. Are you doing good, Bob? You having a good week so far? Yeah, I am. Do you get that quote where that quote is from a TV show? Brain scramblies. Uh, no, it feels like 30 Rock. What is it? <laughs> what if I helped you by the name of the character is Laszlo, who says that? Laszlo. Um, boy, who is Laszlo? I don't know. He's roommates with Nadja, Nandor, and Guillermo. <laughs> oh, man. Nothing. <laughs> oh, man. Why don't we, uh, I'll come back to that later because it relates to my first wonder. Perfect. Good. Yeah. So we are just like, we've never done this before, but we're kind of just taking the model of someone else's podcast and we're going to put on our show. It's called Wonderful by uh, Griffin and Rachel McElroy, some of my podcasting heroes right there in Austin, Texas. Um, and yeah, I just know Dave. Yeah. Yeah, I won't. And uh, it's a pretty fun show to listen to. I feel like it's a nice, easy listen, you know, usually like 30 or 40 minutes. And they just talk about things that they're loving a lot, what they find wonderful. And so Bob and I are going to talk about some of the things that we find wonderful and take a break from the heavy baggage we carry into the dystopian world each and every day. And... I'm going to get us going. Bob's never listened to the show, so he has no idea what he's getting himself into. <laughs> um, but yeah, I am going to, we're going to open with our small wonders and then we'll talk about our bigger ones. And for my small wonder, it has just been this thing that's been giving me a lot of joy this week. And it is the chocolate salted caramel. I feel like not everybody knows, but I used to work at C's Candy and I spent a couple the you know, when I, when I was working at C's Candy, the, um, the shifts were always from, we would start candy season around Halloween and we'd go until Mother's Day. And I usually got hired on for the busy, busy time at C's Candy, which is like Christmas to Valentine's Day. And I was like the secondary stalker at C's Candy. So I was usually, rarely was I out on the floor. I was usually just counting up chocolates in the back and I would <laughs> grab a bunch of 
I was just like counting chocolates all day. And I can't tell you how many of those little suckers I popped into my mouth and just loving it. There was, I really can't tell you much about C's candy, except that, you know, Aunt Betty sends Helen Maisler, our mom, a box of C's candy every Christmas. And mom's like, oh, you love C's candy. You love eating those little nuts and shoes. And I, she like went in and got me a job application. And I just love like that, that how the caramel mixes with the chocolate and it gets with salt and a little bit of nut. And it just makes me like so happy. It's been powering me through this like March, April time. And I recently got super deep into another salted caramel called made by the Sanders company. And we always call it Saunders. I don't know why we do that, but that seems like something me and you would do. Doesn't it, Bob? Hashtag Michael Davis. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Um, Which is another Betty to Helen. I just love these little old women sending these salted caramels. And you all probably know Sanders a little bit because they have made their way into Costco at this point. And people like... I. I was at Costco for the first time in a long time. I sat down and I opened up. um, I saw that they had like 80 caramels from Sanders for like six bucks, which was great. Um, And I've just been chomping one or two down a day and it's been like really powering me through. But I do want to say, you know, Sanders, the reason that I'm really loving it is because it's, you know, the first ever Sanders was, I'm looking this up now, was made in on Woodward Avenue in downtown downtown Detroit, Michigan in 1875. And it was opened by a German-born man named Frederick Sanders Schmidt. And I feel like it's pretty interesting to think about that history. Like there's not much in America that has much history worth talking about. Um, But that's a pretty deep history, 150 years of making caramels. And I don't know, Bob, I feel like that's like where some of our roots are downtown Detroit, you know? And yes, the other small wonder or the, my big wonder will um, also talk a little bit about Germany too, because I, there's just a lot that I want to bring up about Germany today, I guess. Excellent, Dave. I'll jump in and, just appreciate you for that wonder and name and name for our listeners that Dave has like unreal abilities to see like just some random C's chocolate and be like, Oh yeah, that's a raspberry truffle. And I'll be like, damn, how did you know that? Or like, Oh yeah, that's a dark chocolate hazelnut or something, you know? And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, so it stayed with you, Dave. It stayed with you. Um, clerk. Exactly. Uh, so my small wonder is the, it's hard to name it, but I guess I'll name it as quiz mastering and particularly Dave Maisler quiz mastering as of recently. And just the whole concept of pub quiz and then trivia that's been giving me a lot of joy and wonder. And it's just like this wildly rich vein of interest that we have that we kind of hide away, but um, it comes out and every now and then just for the listener, Dave's been sending us out these questions on the small group 
chat um, and asking to see if we can get these, like how many in this category can you get together? Like who was on, on the main stage at Lilith Fair in 1998 is one of the, the best ones. So um, that has been giving me joy. And I just want to give a little bit of history of trivia. And nice. love it because that word is so interesting. It's actually got some interesting history to it. The word is Latin and it means try via, which means roads. So three roads. And that idea is actually something that got transferred to the French and then the university, the education system. So K through 12 was trivia three, like it, it was like logic, rhetoric, and some other thing. And then higher education was quadrion. And so trivia became sort of like known as like the things that everyone should know. And it had like respect to it. But, um, you know, it. I think because it got commodified in the 20th century through like first like quiz shows and then through Trivial Pursuit, it became known as like something less than. But I still think trivia is is worth something, you know, it's still, still interesting in some sense. Um, and then also the history is if you were in Boulder, Colorado in the mid to late aughts, you would know that the Maislers just dominated the quiz scene, the bar oh, quiz yeah. scene in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and that's just hilarious. We were like an absolute force if you look back on it. Not that we were, I mean, there's other forces out there too, but you yep. have to say we were one of them. And that's very hilarious to think about because it's now like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And it feels like a different lifetime. So that's my small wonder. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm, that's a cool little depth of knowledge there, a little trivia for you. And I'm definitely going to build on that trivia a little bit for my big wonder. Um, in, the, in the form of pursuit, as it were. But yeah, I'm... I'm just like blown away thinking about where bar trivia has gone and how it like got like capitalized and conglomerated into like the geeks who drink world, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, like the last time we were doing trivia, like pre COVID, I, I like in Fort Collins, I tried to go out for a trivia night and it was like all like, here are where you can find geeks who drink. And it's like, well, that's not what I want. I want like local independent trivia. Grassroots trivia. Grassroots. I want some nerdy dude with a a homemade microphone set up and like some (laughs) Bud Light. God damn it. (laughs) But it was all like geeks who drink. I mean, and it's to be honest, I like the format geeks who drink. They have it down. It's really a nice the trivia is really quite nice. Um, but I don't know. There's just something about like when you go and you get your random nerdy dude you're, and he has something for you that's like out of this world. And you're like, dang, that was a great question. You know, remember how like some kind of tiebreaker at the lazy dog was a chug. And from some reason, like the best chuggers in Boulder County would show up at the lazy dog and you were like our best chugger. So that was like this, like it's like the beers would be placed and then like all the, all you all would like throw them back in like a quarter second, you know? Uh, (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. The lazy dog trivia was like, it was like one question and then it was a chug off. Terrible. Like, (laughs) trivia there but yeah like if you want good trivia you had to go to connor o'neill's or the walrus 
Yeah. But if you wanted like a ridiculous chug off, you go to Lazy Dog. <laughs> oh, dang, Bob. That's great. <clears throat> yeah, love it. Well, I'm going to just keep us going and I'm going to dig deep into my big wonder. And um, yeah, feel free to stop me whenever you want. But I'm am excited to tell you all about board games and it's something that we haven't really talked about a lot but i am like one of the biggest board game guys and i love them so much and i feel like we like when i think about board games i know like you and i bob we grew up playing them and i don't really remember how they got brought into our house like and by board game, I mean like any type of like recreational game that's not played on the computer, right? So I'm I'm even talking about like card games and um, yeah, it's just sort of outside the box type of games like Pinochle and Bridge and Euchre and all those. Maybe uh, even chess and checkers as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I just want to give you guys a little bit of like some of my, I just was digging into some board game history. I was watching... Um, I was got caught caught myself in a YouTube vortex. What are those called? They're not vortexes. YouTube, uh, like a rabbit hole. Yeah, like a rabbit hole. And um, I sometimes watch like kids science videos, which leads you to like adult science videos. And then all of a sudden, I'm like watching this one guy, and his name for all of you, his name is Tom Scott, and he plays a game called the Royal Game of Ur, which was invented by the Sumerians, um, circa 3000 BC. Wow. And um, one of the cool things about these games is because like, they've been played sort of continuously and we have enough of their written language. Um, yeah, we just like know like how this game actually works and there's been like replicas made and... So like, you know, the Sumerians and the Egyptians are like famous for these old board games, but um, they're pretty junky. Like they're fine, but they're basically like the game Sari or Parcheesi, um, which it was made in India. Um, but like all these games are called race games, right? So you like race around the board and that's it, right? So it's like you take a bunch of like sticks or rocks or stones or... Um, it seems like in Sumeria, they like to use knuckles. So like horse knuckles and camel knuckles and um, goat knuckles. And you throw the knuckles and however the knuckles landed, you got to move your dude on the board, which is kind of cool. But that is like, and as you like, as any gamer knows, you kind of want to bling out your knuckles. You know what I mean? So it's like they started like drilling holes into their knuckles and like doing all these like interesting things. And that's kind of how dice became invented from all these mm. knuckles. Dice um, came from a race game or like yeah, over the years. Like, yeah. So like animal bones got turned into knuckles and yeah, I mean, we kind of like, like now in our modern era, we kind of like to think of like, what's the trope of our board game? Like there's so many, you know, for, for instance, one that everyone can relate to monopoly. That's like a game of like becoming a capitalist and like owning everything. Right. But like back in the day, there was always tropes with all these games too, you know, like even chess has the game of like conquering with an army, right. And like protecting the King. Um, and yeah, most of the like ancient board games, they either had some sort of religious element to it or some sort of like army element or some sort of like, um, deeper meaning to it. And not all of it is totally clear, but like, you know, the game, um, 
what we know as shoots and ladders that was originally called snakes and ladders. Mm. And it was a game invented by the Indians. Um, and it was all about like karma, right? So like, as you're like trying to ascend into heaven and you, you like make a foible and you hit a snake and you have to like shoot back down to the bottom of the board. Mm. Um, which I mean, yet again, it's an, that is like a simple race game in a lot of ways, right? Um, you're just going, trying to get to the end. It's like you start at one end and you go to the other. And um, yeah, but anyway, I do like how those games have like some deeper meaning and how, you know, games in general, they have this like magical element to them where they, we like connect to that, that storytelling. And yeah, I play a lot of chess and I do like this idea that like chess has also like board games travel all over the place. Like chess was invented in India as well and it traveled all over the world and each like, um, yeah, each country sort of had their own take on it. And I was like digging into some of the history of chess and I found this um, in Japan. I can't remember the name of it, but in Japan, they eventually got chess at one point and they um, like added a third row and they would, you know, they would characterize their, their dudes a little bit more. And they added a third row with like elephants and camels and like magical characters. And then they like as all uh, as all game boards get right you buy the expansion set so you like add like another like 15 rows and like more dudes and eventually in japan chess got to be so crazy it was like a board that was like a thousand twenty four um like spaces and it was 250 like pieces versus 250 whoa <laughs> and there's like magical uh like magical beavers and like 16 different types of dragons and are there any experts who still play that version of that game of, the, of that chess ah, i'm sure there are like the rules are out there like you can like look them up and and find out all the rules to this like ridiculous game of chess um yeah but that's like most of the history i went oh they're backgammon for nick cantrick backgammon has a pretty interesting history too where there's like this one woman who was this like ridiculously amazing backgammon player and she like could not be beat and she ended up like playing some king at one point and um she she kind of like is kind of like Khaleesi like from the Game of Thrones where she's like the mother of dragons and she like was totally doing this in this like epic game of backgammon she was like pretending to lose and she ended up losing like thousands of dollars like so much treasure and then she wanted to like win some dude. So she was like, try like, she's like, okay, fine, let's play one more game. But if I win, I get that guy over there. And she just like clobbered this king and she like took this dude. And like, I don't know, I just think that's pretty epic to like have all this like betting and whatnot back in the day on backgammon. Um, anyhow, what I was really trying to get into, like, what I really wanted to find out is. Because I feel like most of the board games we knew growing up, they kind of sucked. And I feel like they're all basically like versions of games that are like 5,000 years old, like Sorry or Shoots and Ladders or even Monopoly is like, ugh, it's like so classically bad Monopoly as a game. I feel like there's like some good moments, but really we, you end up just yelling and 
I was trying to figure out why, like, like where, because now board games are like amazing, right? Like as we enter this modern era, we've come to this new stage of board gaming that's called like, uh, most people call it like Euro board gaming, but it used to be like the German board game style. And it's this like totally new way of thinking about board games where you're much more involved and it has a lot less to do with like fighting and war and a lot more to do with building and cooperation. And I feel like um, I was doing a little bit of a deep dive into where that started and like the roots of that. But a lot of it comes from like, there was this boom of board games in like the 1930s and 1940s, both like all around the world, right? That's kind of like when Milton Bradley and um, Parker Brothers got their start, right? And there's this like this boon in board gaming and production. And if you look at all the US-based board games, it's games like Battleship. It's games like Risk. It's games like... Um, Oh, the Stratego is another urn. What's the one where you have like, maybe it's not Stratego, but anyways, it's these games where you can lose, right? You're like trying to dominate someone or Monopoly is another great example, right? Where you're like, eventually you're trying to like um, X people out. And um, it's this like post um, Nazi um, Germany that like produces these like, um, these building agricultural games because like, I think it's like post third Reich falling, right? Where, or this is what the article I was reading said, like the post third Reich fell and like the, the board gaming industry wanted to like not push towards like war and destruction. And they wanted to push towards like rebuilding and like games like Agricola and Catan uh, like have their roots in these like building games where you're working like cooperatively and you're not trying to eliminate others. You're trying to like get to the, I mean, the point is to like build better than other people. So you get to a point where you can like win the game, but you ne- you're never eliminated in, in any of the Euro style games, which I really love. And I feel like it, it was this moment in time too, in the U S like once, once the Germany was like, finding this boon, right? And um, German Germany's famous for the Spiele der Jahren, which is like the best board game of the year. I'll have to jump in here and um, just correct you just a little bit there. <laughs> Come get me, Bob. Come get me. <laughs> uh, yeah, just the Spiel des Jahres. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Um, otherwise, Sitzman would, would just have me for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so you have like this boon of board gaming happening in Europe because these games are like complex and they're well thought out. And in in America, you just have these like race style games, which are not that much fun. Um, and then like the the Uber nerds just like get, do this deep dive into like Dungeons and Dragons and like computer game, like the um Dungeons and Dragons in the p- computer game world like we played some of those games but like they're kind of like missed and that are more popularized but like oh yeah just like uh, RPGs yeah RPGs right exactly so um I feel like there the there's like this big dearth of a moment where it's like oh we could have had this like great gaming industry but it it kind of like became so complex in the United States where it's like it 
it was almost off-putting to like be in the Dungeons and Dragons world because that was like too much of a deep dive. It wasn't accessible to everybody. Whereas like in Germany, you have these like quaint little games where you're trying to build trains to like connect Europe together. But it's like in, inevitably it's like super complex and like so much fun. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I just feel like now we're at this point where we like, I have like found these beautiful games. Um, they've come into my life. Like, and it basically started with settlers of Catan for sure for me, but like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have, as I look over into the corner of my room, I have, um, just like a stockpile of great board games. And I'm like, feel so grateful for, um, the history of the board game. And yeah, I just wanted to share that with you all. I just, I have to have a few follow-ups off of that. Oh, you got to Bob. Come Okay. The first is a personal question. Um, if you can name my favorite game from growing up. Yeah, of course. Um, well, you're, I feel like you have three games that you actually liked growing up. One was Trivial Pursuit. The other was Scrabble. And the third one was History of the World. Oh, also Where in the World, too. Those are all really good. Um, But I was thinking like young, like when I was very young and not super young. Labyrinth? Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. The Amazing Labyrinth. Remember that game? What do you think of when you think of dad getting us a game for Christmas? God, I feel like I I went for all of them and I missed on all of them, huh? What is it, Bob? <laughs> all those were very close. They were good guesses. The game is somebody. Oh yeah, where you're like just naming the functions of body parts. <laughs> to this day, I know what the gallbladder does because of that game. Really? What's the gallbladder do? Um, it stores insulin that's produced by the pancreas. <laughs> Man, I feel like all the games we played, Bob, are just like naming like facts about certain things. It's like, oh, here's somebody or trivia. here's where in the world. Yeah, it's just trivia. It's just trivia. Yeah, somebody. <laughs> oh, that's great. No wonder we like trivia. Yeah. Um, my second question is, okay, post-World War II, East Germany, West Germany, they're, they're very divided, you know, because of the Cold War. So I'm curious which Germany it develops in. I would guess it's West Germany. And I, get, I would guess it has something, something to do with Ravensburg, the home of the famous puzzle maker. Ah, that could be. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that like the story that I was following that sort of gave me the best idea of this history um, was following a uh, American guy who moved to Germany in the 1970s. His name is Phil Eklund. And if we can find out where Phil Eklund moved, I bet that will give us the key to where he, um, where this, like, it all came together for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're like, the, totally makes sense that German style, a cooperative game. I mean, I could see it being born in West Germany or East Germany, East Germany being like socialist, communist. Um, But West Germany was like social democracy. So it was less 
individualistic capitalism that you're describing that the U.S. was part of and still mm-hmm. is. So it's cool how board gaming reflects sociocultural context. Yeah, that's for sure. My last question is, are you aware of the satanic panic that took place around Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s? Of course. Yeah. I feel like it it also um, made a dip into our favorite game, um, Magic the Gathering. And the, yeah, I feel like there, did I send you a video on that, Bob, the satanic panic? I think you did, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you brought my awareness to it. I feel like um, Sam of Ristic Studies, he has a YouTube channel and he talks a lot about the satanic panic and how like these like Christian groups were trying to put down D&D and magic for like the imagery that it had. And I feel like, man, that feels like so off base and so long ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Ugh. Yeah, that's good. I will say one final thing is um, Klaus Traber made... Um, Settlers of Catan. And I feel like if we can have the, what is it called? The show notes team find out where he's from. That might answer your East or West Germany question, you know? <laughs> I've noticed in the last, this week and last week, we've been putting a lot of pressure on that team. Yeah. It's a, it's a very feisty team, Bob, and I don't <laughs> want them to go to waste. Definitely. It really is. It's definitely um, the Loyola Chicago of, of teams. Yeah. Oh, there is another word. Uh, two more things I got to tell you. Um, if you want to like find out any information about board games, the best resource like internationally these days is called Board Games Geek. And that's like a website that will rank all your board games and tell you about them. And they have a pretty good way of ranking them. Um, but I will all... And yeah, it's it's just a great website that I like to go to quite a bit. Um, but I do think that there's a bit of snobbery with, um, us board gamers in the culture. And we, there's a word that gets thrown around a lot about Ameritrash games, which are like your monopolies, your game of life's, your classics. But I think there is something good about those games. And I don't want to just say that they're, they're not like good for adults to play. Um, but I feel like they are worth mentioning. And we didn't even get into the party game, the Trivial Pursuit, the Scattergory, you know. The Cards uh, Against Humanities. Yeah, exactly. And that, I feel like that whole scene has been like taking a boon these days too, which I really love. Well, I better get into my big wonder. Yeah, get us, Bob. Okay. Um, it starts off with a little question for you. It is, well, my big, my big wonder is direct action. And what, what's just a little bit that comes to your mind when I say the word direct action? Um, for me, I think of like spray paint, primary color spray paint. I think of uh, banner drops. I think of art. I think of taking things into our own hands rather than waiting a little bit. Nice. Beautiful. That definitely reflects my understanding of the term. And it gave me joy because it was the central topic of my psychology of activism class today. And I really enjoyed discussing it with the students in that class. And direct action 
we read an article that talked about when activists take direct action, that like whatever that moment is of taking that action in the world is a moment of intense knowledge production. Uh, Meaning like when either a person or a group takes direct action, there's so much that happens in the world and there's so much to like learn. So like the person taking the action is changing. The world is changing. And all that is just super interesting and important because it helps to inform the future. So like I was thinking about that and trying to think about what's a good example of it. And I remembered this great example of last year, which was when I was training in Santa Cruz in October. It seems like a lifetime ago now, but it was October of last year. I was training um, with a lot of other folks on this spontaneous training that was about how to prevent a coup. Do you remember that, Dave? Um, yeah, I don't remember the exact training, but I do remember preventing the coup it was, training. It was like a, f- a couple of days and then it was like everyone needed to do what they could to monitor and do it, whatever it took from their position in society to prevent a coup. And then the election happened and um, the thing was, so this is all direct action because it's just people in the community who are not experts by any means, just are concerned people came together and said to themselves, we got to like do something, make sure that Trump doesn't try to steal or like have a coup post-election. Um, and we didn't know how he might do it. There was like some guesses based upon studying of history, but what it came down to, and I don't know if you remember this, like, with a lot of clarity because it was kind of small, but it was incredibly important was after the votes mostly got counted, they in Michigan, like mm-hmm. we're trying to get the electors to vote for Biden because Biden won the popular vote in Michigan and the Republicans were trying to have it. So the election in Michigan wouldn't get certified. And if that election didn't get certified, then maybe Georgia and Pennsylvania also wouldn't get certified, creating a chaos situation where Trump could just prey off that chaos. But there was one of these groups, these prevent the coup groups in Michigan, and that they went to somewhere in Detroit where that was happening. And they saw the Republicans trying to put pressure on those certifiers. And they said, no, you have to certify it. And they didn't certify it that day, but then there was like massive media coverage because that group went. And then the next day they certified it. And then there's of course more attempts, but the lesson from that was that they, like the people in that community is about direct action, not waiting Mm -hmm. to like, just be like, oh, the system will work. The system's going to work. So we don't have to do anything. No is like, you have to make the system work for you and yeah. you have to take That's a direct good quote action right there. Sorry that I just like that quote. You have to make the system work for you. Yes. And that, that kind of describes direct action for me. Yep. Yeah. And there's still no guarantee. The system is so oppressive at times that it might not work, but you have to take direct action. And so that was great in class today, but also on a personal level, it's the idea of guerrilla gardening is something that I'm doing right now. And it's something that we used to do back in the day. 
Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of just like garden where there's any land and make it happen. Don't wait. Don't wait to like ask who owns this land or like just grow, grow stuff on it if you can. And there's this funny little strip of land in between me and my neighbor's house. And I have no idea. It's like, it always has like plants, like weeds growing on it for the year that I've lived here. I'm like, huh, I don't know if this is theirs or ours, but I'm just going to start growing on it. And so, um, yep. Gorilla gardening. Yeah. I love all that, Bob. I feel like one of the discussions Julie and I were having about at dinner um, dealt a little bit with this idea of reparations and how like, you know, we don't earn a lot of money and we don't have a lot to give, but Julie was bringing up the point of like, it feels like, you know, we're kind of like waiting for something to happen, but maybe like we can like, and we don't really know what we're doing and, but it just like goes along with direct action. Like maybe we can make this idea of like reparations money, like happen at least on a personal level. And if enough people like are making that happen, like I'm then like reparations can happen in some form, you know, whether, and I don't know exactly like, like I don't have anything much more to say about that, but I do feel like there's like great power in the idea of just like, taking it upon yourself rather than waiting for like waiting for racist institutions to work themselves out doesn't seem to be working over the last um, forever. But I feel like, yeah, I feel like if you can take some direct action, but I do think that there, to me, I feel like there's great power in the idea of community, you know, like it's one thing for me to give like a hundred dollars of my paycheck to, uh, you know, some group, or even an, an individual, but it like does so much more good when we can pool our money and make, I feel like we can move mountains as a community. My advice is do it. And there's a quote from the reading that I love. It is start from where you are, fight your way out and watch the interconnections proliferate. So that just means like just, like wherever you are, whatever idea you have, do it. And then that'll like, and like fight your way out, meaning like, like whatever the situation is, just keep on doing it. And then just watch what happens because you're taking action. The, the idea is when you take action in the world, you change the world. And like, we think of like the world as being static and like, oh, there's just structures, static, but actually the world is incredibly dynamic, always moving, always in flux. And when you like, kind of like a force field, you know, like do something and then like all these other things happen. So yeah, I one, do one, one other thing I want to hit on is you talked a lot of, or you mentioned that not only does the world change, but you change, right? And yes. With direct action. And that's something that um, you were kind of hitting on with that point right there. But I feel like that's an important thing for us to take away with direct action in general, like how much you and I were affected. I mean, I feel like with our little bit of direct action we did um, way back in the day in our anarchist days, as Nick likes to call them. Um, never ended. Never ended for some. Oh, um, yeah. But I feel like that direct action uh, created a lot more of a tidal wave within ourselves, which feels really powerful. Like, yeah, we like might have dropped a banner saying that George Bush wasn't our president or whatever. 
Um, or like been like, Hey, water H2O does not equal money. <laughs> But like, and like, who, who knows if that affected anybody else. Right. But like it created waves in us. And I feel like that was something that I noticed with Dan Cantrick, um, back when he was, uh, maybe this was 2016, um, during like the Ferguson movement. And I feel like he was doing a lot of protesting with, with and around Naropa. Right. And I feel like that I could feel like a big, like, um, direct action change with him and how he, I kind of feel like that was a lot of like the Ferguson movement involved, like um, shutting down streets and highways. Um, and I believe those were called die-ins. Is that right? Where you would like lay down in a road or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think die-ins could happen anywhere, but I think they were happening on highways. Yep. Yeah. And I feel like I, a lot of the conversations I had with Dan about, um, that were just like, was powerful. And I feel like he, like, I, I bet he'll, he would reflect on that. Maybe we'll have to get his word on it. Um, he would reflect on it in a positive way. The old Octavia Butler, whatever you change also changes you. Mm, Yep. God has changed, right? That's right. All right. Bring it to the dystopia, Dave. Thank you. Yeah. Better better get better get us off with a gut check tonight, huh, Bob? Gut check. All right, Bob. Um what? Here's my gut check. It's just coming right from the gut. I am going to make the statement within the next 5 years. Now, I'm going to say by 2030 there is going to be a 51st United State. Gut to gut. Gut to gut, Dave. I love it. That's a great gut check. So by 2030, there's going to be a 51st state. I like that. That's, I'm going to give that the highest rating I've ever given a gut check on our show thus far. Wow. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Whoa. Okay. Where's it coming from? It is coming from a few different places. So first of all, there are strong movements to make Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico 51st states. There's like really strong movements on both of those degrees, uh, accounts. Um, Yeah. And just so much logic behind making them both states, right? Um, D.C., because there's like a million people that live there and they don't get senators, but yet... Vermont gets senators. No, I'm just kidding. I love Vermont, but still, you know. <laughs> you got to give a shout out to the Vermont listeners, Bob. <laughs> exactly. That was just like a, a goading in the Vermonties. Yep. Vermonsters. Anyway, and then Puerto Rico because uh, it's literally a colonial relationship and that's just, that's fucked, you know? So that has to change. And then there's, yeah. on the other side of things, like State of Jefferson and like wild right-wing stuff. Um, in California yep. to make a 51st state. So I think there's just a lot of possibilities there. Yeah. What about Texas breaking up? Do you think that Texas is going to break up into four different parts? Could happen. Texas is volatile. Yeah. I feel like it's just one deep freeze away from the state of Austin. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm, you inspired me. I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10, Bob. <laughs> What were you? What were you before I gave you those uh, cases? 
Oh man, like a three, maybe. <laughs> the state of Galveston. Persuasion. Yeah, I was like hanging on by Galveston, you know? <laughs> God but, you bless know, Galveston. You know what they say, state of Jefferson's a state of mine. Only really me and Nick Cantrick say that. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, I'm sure Julie says it too. Uh, all right well bob you want to lead us out absolutely our contact info is email davepeachtree at gmail.com our twitter which we recently got a really good retweet is at bmaze19 instagram is thriving underscore in underscore dystopia our website is thrivingindystopia.com thank you mix and Dave Peachtree is tweeting out, or sorry, TikToking out on Twi- uh, on, on TikTok. There it is. <laughs> nice, Bob. Yeah, I also have one final thing to say. Um, we got a good um, reaction to one of our podcasts last week, or two weeks, three weeks ago, where we were talking about, um, and it's going to bring us, tie us all back together because our second episode, Bob, was how we carry our baggage in the physical form, which is great. And um, good on you. Yeah. So, um, Susan Dalen, um, she gave me a text and she said that a lot of the things that I was hitting on or we were hitting on on that episode um, kind of deal with a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I just downloaded it on Audible for everyone out there that um, listens to Scooter Seven Eight Three um, on his Audible. So, oh, a good a new contact, for <laughs> new coordinates. Nice, yeah. That's the sixth dimension. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, I'm excited to listen to the body keeps the score, and I'm glad we got to tie. Oh, thank you, Susan Dalen. Love yeah. it, Susan, Peter, and Theodore. <laughs> yeah, they call him Teddy. Teddy ball game. Teddy ball game. All right, Bob. Love you. We'll see you next week. Love you too. But if. What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is in heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. And finally, our new outro song is Stay by Valerie Jim. See you next week.